So a couple of weeks ago, during a section of our military training, all of the chaplains entered into a virtual reality world. We put on these Oculus things, and I was expecting to be uh, vomiting in a trash basket, because that's what happens when I put on my son's Oculus. I put it on, and I'm like, bad news, but I survived this one. We entered into this uh, virtual reality world in a short presentation called Clouds Over Sidra. Sidra is a 12-year-old Syrian girl uh, living in a refugee camp in Jordan, and she was living there for a year and a half at the time of this story that she tells. The presentation walks you through her living conditions and elements of her daily routine. It really is a sobering exercise, uh, particularly since in this virtual reality world, you can see her and she's looking at you and talking to you. And then as you're moving through this uh, and turn your head, you can see all of the, the scenery and all of the other children and all of the other scenes that are going on that she's describing. Um, as the presentation comes toward the close, uh, she starts crying. And she mentions uh, that she's been here for a year and a half and that's really been enough time and she'd like to go home. And she reminds us of a statement that her teacher has taught them. My teacher says the clouds have come from Syria too and someday we'll all turn around and head back there. See, the, the exercise was to evoke within us an empathy for the circumstances of others. And I think it was effective in doing that as you see a person's scenario. And just as we would be empathetic to the difficulties that uh, others would face in their earthly pilgrimage, we must have compassion for their spiritual condition. We must have compassion for the spiritual condition of those around us. You know, it's very easy for us to be judgmental about the way other people navigate through life and the way that they view the world. But we have to understand that there are many factors that enter into how a person arrives at their worldview. Uh, they have been educated in certain ways. They've grown up in an environment that taught them certain things. They have uh, viewed society through their own lens and their own experience. And this marks people. And you know what we can never, ever uh, shortchange? The fact that an unbeliever is being influenced and their worldview is shaped by the God of this world. The Bible doesn't leave that as a mystery. Listen to what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We have to understand that our neighbors, while they may have an entirely different worldview, and, and you may despise the worldview that they hold. 
we must have some compassion toward what has caused them to arrive at that worldview and what has kept them from seeing the glories of the Gospel. In Romans chapters 9-11, through 11, we are going to notice the burden that God has placed upon the Apostle Paul for his fellow countrymen, the Jews. His burden is clearly stated in intervals at the beginning of chapter 9, at the beginning of chapter 10, at the beginning of chapter 11. We see these intervals of Paul's experience and sense of burden. And our emphasis this morning will be upon the first of those emphatic statements. But to lay some groundwork as we approach this next section in the book of Romans, I want for us to look a little bit and we'll have a little bit of background information that will help us over the coming months to prepare for what God has for us. Let's start by looking at the first five verses of Romans chapter 9. Paul writes, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So that's the first stating of his passion. Look at chapter 10 in verse 1 now, the second interval of his stating of passion and burden. In verse 1 of chapter 10, he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel or for them is that they may be saved. This is his burden. What does he ultimately believe? Does he merely wish that many Jews would be saved? Or does he have an expectation of their salvation? That's an important question that we have to understand as we approach these passages. Look at chapter 11 and verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected His people? Stop right there. Has God rejected His people? Now he's talking in this context of Israel. And he doesn't leave us in suspense. He immediately answers, by no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. You know, chapter 8, you know how it ends. Could you, could you have a more glorious passage of Scripture than Romans chapter 8? I'm not saying that other Scriptures are less important or of lesser value, but but is any Scripture of more value than Romans chapter 8? I would challenge you and say there's no way. As we come to the end of Romans chapter 8, and the majestic, comforting assurance for all who have trusted Jesus Christ, we will never be separated from God's love because we've been united to Jesus Christ. This is a comforting assurance from God. And it gives us great joy. 
chapter 8 brought to the conclusion Paul's explanation of the importance and power of the Gospel that he's been getting at since chapter 1 and verse 16. From chapter 1, verse 16 through chapter 3 and verse 23, we recognize this. Everyone needs salvation for all have sinned. And then the next section from chapter 3, verse 24 to the end of chapter 5 and verse 21, salvation is available to all through the work of Jesus Christ. He's been teaching us this. This importance, this need of salvation and the supply. Then in chapter 6 through uh, chapter 8 and verse 14, salvation is demonstrated in life through sanctification, that process whereby God is making us like His Son, Jesus Christ. Salvation, the Gospel, is put on display in our daily lives. He's been talking about this. And then at the end of chapter 8 from verses 15 through 30, difficulties in life precede the glory of heaven. Difficulties in life precede the glory of heaven. And then as you come to the very end of chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, difficulties do not indicate that God has abandoned us. Stated positively, those who have been saved by faith in Jesus Christ know that God is for us and that nothing can separate us from His love. This is how he just concluded chapter 8. It's clear, right? His Gospel presentation... From chapter 1, verse 16, through the end of chapter 8, it's very clear that those who have faith in Jesus Christ have their sins forgiven. Christ's righteousness added. It's demonstrated in time and space in this life. And the difficulties of life do not tell us that those realities aren't there. He's told us this. The question, and Paul brings it to the surface, is this. If there are so few Jewish people that are experiencing this comfort or assurance, can God really be trusted? Aren't the Jews the first recipients of these promises? And if there are so few of them, Has God and has His Word failed? That's the question that Paul brings to our attention. Did God fail to deliver on what He promised? Because if God failed in what He promised to the Jews, at what point will I find myself in that same boat? This is the rationale that we enter into a study of Romans chapters 9-11 through with. Paul is questioning. He's saying, I have this burden. I have this, this heavy weightiness on my heart for my fellow countrymen to whom the promises were made. Has God failed to keep His promises? And he's going to systematically address this question. He sets the stage in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 9. We've already read it a couple of times. We'll read it again, but not right now. In chapter 9, verse 6, the beginning of the verse, he then states his thesis. This is his thesis statement. Look at verse 6, just the first half of Romans 9 6. 
He says, but it is not as though the Word of God has failed. This is his thesis. He doesn't leave us wondering. Oh, I wonder if God has failed. No, it is not as if the Word of God has failed. Notice this. He doesn't say God has failed. It's not as if God has failed. But if God's Word fails and God's Word comes from Him, if God's Word fails, God fails. If God fails, His Word fails. And He starts this process off by telling us that God and His Word have not failed. At the end of this section, so we're talking right now about the beginning of Romans chapter 9. At the end of the section, let's look at how he concludes. Look at verses 33 through 36 of Romans 11. This is Paul's response to this whole matter that he's going to be discussing in these chapters. He says, beginning in verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how unscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Will you say it? Amen. Amen. Do you think that Romans 9 through 11 is supposed to be encouraging or discouraging? What do you think? Is this a positive theme? Or is this a negative or depressing theme? It is entirely glorious. It is entirely uplifting, encouraging, and needed. So Paul will systematically address concerns that lead to a positive conclusion. Did you hear that? Paul will systematically address concerns that will lead to a positive conclusion. In chapter 9, this is just a summary, list after list to the begin. We'll, we'll get off of the lists in a minute, okay? In Romans 9, 6 to 13, he's going to give this general idea God has already established the pattern of the line of his promise. God has already established the pattern of the line of His promises. We can address in chapter 9, verses 6-13. through 13. And then in verses 14-29, through 29, God is saving a remnant, a, a portion. He's saving a remnant and He is just. That's what He'll teach us in verses 9, 14-29. In... Chapter 9, verse 30, through the end of chapter 10 and verse 21, here's a summary statement of what we're going to see. God has not failed. 
It is the unbelief or rejection on the part of the Jewish people or anyone else that has caused the stumbling. That's what we're going to learn in chapter 10, essentially, but it starts at the end of chapter 9. And then in chapter 11, verses 1-32, through 32, God will bring about His grand plan to save His people. Has the Word of God failed? What's the answer? No. God has established a pattern. God is saving a remnant. He is just. People reject, disbelieve the Gospel. They cause their own stumbling. And chapter 11, despite in the face of people's rejection, God is still saving people and is going to fulfill every promise He ever made. The Word of God and God's promises will not, cannot, ever, under any circumstances, fail. Do you believe this? Yes. Well, Paul is about to prove it. And we are going to be going through some some wonderful and challenging treading in these coming weeks. While God will ultimately bring about the salvation of many Jews and Gentiles, there is an aching within Paul's soul concerning the current spiritual unbelief of his countrymen. All of those dwelling in unbelief do not, do not have the assurance that he has been declaring throughout this letter. Unbelief short circuits the blessing that God promises. And this is causing a weightiness upon the Apostle Paul, which is why the title of our study this morning is A Passion for People's Souls. Look again at Romans 9, beginning in verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So we'll look at this in three stages this morning. First of all, last time we have a list. Forgive me. Lists abound. We must have a burden for the lost. We must have a burden for the lost. We'll see that in verses 1-3. through In verse 4 and 5, the first half of verse 5, we must understand that position does not equal possession. Position in life does not equal possession of salvation. And then at the end of verse 5, we must understand that bloodline does not equal inheritance. He lays this out for us. We start with, we must have a burden for the lost. We read it already. I'm not going to reread it. He states uh, the sincerity of his concern in verse 1, and he does it it three ways so that we we can't really escape what he's saying. Uh, I'm I'm telling you the truth. (laughs) All right, that's good. I'm glad. I'm glad you're telling me the truth. I'm not lying. (laughs) Where are you going with this? The Holy Spirit is bearing witness with my conscience 
She's really affirming that what he's about to talk about is very sincere. How burdened was he? Verse 2, that I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Let's, let's think about this for a moment. Great sorrow comes from the Greek words megas lupe. Megas, like mega. I've got mega lupe, sorrow. The word lupe, sorrow, is used in John chapter 16 by the Lord Jesus. He was telling His disciples that He was going away. And He talks about them having this sorrow. Uh, I've told you that I'm going away. And you have this sorrow, this deep sorrow. That's the concept that He's conveying. Paul uses the same word lupe in his discussion about, remember this man Epaphroditus at the end of Philippians chapter 2? I, I thought he was going to die. I thought he was going to die, and if he died, I would have had lupe upon lupe. Sorrow upon sorrow. So we're talking about a deep, residing grief. This is how Paul describes his thoughts about his fellow countrymen that are still unredeemed. He thinks, they don't know Christ. They are right now in peril. Deep sorrow. And then he says to pile up on top of it for us unceasing anguish. He just ratcheted his sorrow to a whole different level. Unceasing. It's perpetual. It's continual. It's unquenchable. And it's an anguish. It's a grief incomparable. He's talking about having an unquenchable, consuming grief. This is a deep and perpetual and penetrating sorrow. This is how much it means to him. Let that reside upon you for a moment. Why is he so burdened? I want to answer that with Scripture as I seek to do whenever I ask a question. Why is he so burdened? Look back in your Bibles at Romans chapter 2. We'll read from verse 5 through 11. And what we'll notice in these verses is that every person who refuses to repent and believe the gospel will experience the full weight of God's righteous judgment. Look, beginning in verse 5. But because of your hard an impenitent heart. So it's hard and not willing to repent. Hard and impenitent heart. You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. In other words, the right result. The right judgment. You, because of your hardness, and your unwillingness to turn, you are storing up for yourself a day in which you will experience the righteous judgment of God. Verse 6, He, God, will render to each one according to His works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be what? Wrath and fury. Verse 9, there will be, say it with me, tribulation and distress for 
every human being who does evil. Who is this about? To the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. Also to the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. So he's told us, what's at stake? What's on the line? Hardness? Impenitence? A lack of willingness to turn from our sin and turn to Christ? Results in judgment. Head back to Romans chapter 9, please, and let's look at the end of Romans chapter 9. Because Paul is going to tell us in Romans 9, verses 32 and 33, that these Jewish people that he is burdened for have refused to believe. They have, they've been hardened. And as a result, they have not turned. Instead of believing the Gospel and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Look at verse 32. Why? Because they did not pursue it, righteousness, by faith. But as it were, based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Listen carefully. Whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. They won't experience that wrath. They won't experience that tribulation and distress that we read about in Romans chapter 2. But the burden, the, the deep, deep sorrow, this perpetual state of grief arises within Paul because they have not turned. They have remained hardened. Instead of believing on the rock, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. And so his heart is burdened. The burden arises from the significance of the judgment that they will face. My brothers and sisters in Christ, we should also feel this burden. This burden should weigh on us daily that our neighbors, our co-workers, our fellow countrymen, and people all around the world do not know the saving grace of God through Jesus Christ. We should be burdened for the unsaved around us. There are so many that do not know and do not believe the Gospel. They will one day stand before Him. And if they stand before Him without the righteousness provided through Jesus Christ, that will be a day of deep condemnation and eternal sorrow. But they can turn. They can turn from their sin and look upon the Savior and based upon the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, they can be set free. Every day, we walk by people who do not know the grace that is found in Jesus Christ. And did you know this? Every minute, 106 people die. We've been in this room 
The service began 55 minutes ago. You do the math. This is a sobering reality that people are dying every minute without Christ. And that will cost them dearly for eternity. Romans chapter 9 and verse 3, Paul states something that's impossible. He says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for my for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He states something that's impossible. He's already told us that those who are in Christ cannot be condemned, chapter 8 and verse 1, nor can they be separated from the love of God in Christ, found at the end of Romans chapter 8. John Stott in Recording the thoughts of James Denny. So, there's a long way around it. John Stott telling you about James Denny. Says that Paul's thought here is a spark from the fire of Christ's substitutionary love. In other words, this statement in verse 3 that I don't know that I could truthfully make. Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is uttering or writing, and it's a demonstration that the fire of Christ's sacrifice on the cross has lit his heart. Friends, we need this burden. We need this desire for the salvation of our fellow humans. How do we solve this burden? Well, I don't think we can solve this mystery at one time. But here are some thoughts on how we can be in the process of being and doing who we should be and do with this burden. First of all, we should influence those that we are able. We'll talk more about this at the conclusion of our time this morning. Secondly, we should contribute to the cause of the Gospel where we are. Influence those you can. Contribute to the cause of the Gospel where we are. Thirdly, contribute to the cause of the Gospel through missions. So, beyond our sphere. Contribute to the cause of the Gospel beyond our sphere. And fourthly, pray. Pray. Pray for all of these items. Pray for those that you have the opportunity to influence. Pray for the gospel ministry in the area. And I'm not just talking about cornerstone ministry. There are gospel churches all around Rhode Island. They should be in your prayers. Whether they sign their name the same way you do and ascribe to everything you think of the way you think of. These people that are preaching the gospel, we need to pray for God to bring forth fruitfulness from their ministry. And then, of course, through those... uh, missionaries and missionary agencies that are bringing the gospel around the world, we should be praying. Paul's burden and ours is the ongoing work of God. Be sure of this. Our burden will be turned to joy one day. Heaviness now, 
Sorrow now. Grief now. Burden now. Joy is coming one day. When God brings about the completion of His work, He will have demonstrated the riches of His grace upon countless people from every walk of life. Listen to this passage. This brings joy to our souls. Revelation chapter 7. Look at verses 9. They'll be on the screens beside me. Verses 9 and 10. After this I looked and behold, will you say the next words with me? A great multitude. What kind of a multitude? A great multitude from every nation. Sorry, I skipped some words. A great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. What were they doing? They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they were crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is coming. That's the Word of God. That scene is going to take place where we will be one of those numbers if we've trusted Christ as our Savior. One of that number. A, a, a grouping that no one could number. That's how vast it was. That's great multitude. And, and it's not just the white people. And it's not just the Asian people. And it's not just black people. It's a number of people from all walks of life. Every culture, every tribe, every tongue, every people. God will do this. Do you believe that? If we don't believe this, man, this grief that Paul talks about would be crippling. Could we get anything done with a a burden that, that I think it all rests on me and if I don't do this, what will happen? It doesn't rest on me. That doesn't mean I don't have a responsibility and a burden. We have a burden. It's called the mission of the Gospel. The ongoing work of God. But God will ensure its fulfillment. Well, we've got all this that's going on. This burden that's happening. But this joy that's to come... We have to understand this in Paul's argumentation. We must understand position does not equal possession. That's where we get to in verse 4. We'll move through this quickly. Verse 4. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarch. We can stop our reading there. These Jews who Paul is burdened for uh, have a privileged standing in the history of redemption. But that position of privilege does not save them. Listen to um, how privileged this position, position was. They are Israelites. The way that Moses talks about their call in Deuteronomy 7-6 says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His, what does that say? Treasured possessions out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. The Israelites are a special people. This is how how special their relationship to God is. They're the Israelites. To them belongs the adoption, the Bible tells us. God calls them His firstborn in Ephesians, excuse me, in Exodus 4.22. And He talks about how He loved His Son and He called His Son out of Egypt in 
Hosea 11.1. So they're adopted. That, that's, a, that's a privileged position. And to them belongs the glory. This is likely a reference to the Shekinah glory of God as is demonstrated in both the tabernacle and the temple. I planned to turn to Exodus 29 and Exodus 40. Just time does not allow us to do that at the moment. But you can take a look there later. A, a worthwhile read as you see God's presence among His people at the place that He instructed them to build. So, oh, build me this tabernacle. Build me this temple. That's good. I will be with you there. That's the glory. To them belongs the glory. It's a wonderful promise. And it's a wonderful position for them to have received. To them also belongs the covenant. Or the covenants. Well, we think about the Abrahamic covenant, right? To them is the land, the seed, and the blessing in Genesis chapter 12. And the land covenant is uh, broadened out or expanded upon in the Palestinian covenant in the book of Numbers. And the seed covenant is broadened out through the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And the blessing part of that covenant, the spiritual blessing, I will bless you and I'll curse those that curse you, I'll bless those that bless you, that is expanded on in the new covenant recorded in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. So God has given all these covenants to this people. What a privileged position to be in. They also received the law. The giving of the law was a blessing of theirs. They were, these laws were written by the very finger of God and administered, attended to by angels. This is how significant the law is. Listen to, to Moses' estimation, his esteem for the law. Listen to these words that he, he pens in Deuteronomy 4.8. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as this law that I set before you today? No one else has a God that gives them these instructions like our God gives to us. This is a blessing. There's blessing upon blessing. They were also entrusted with the worship. God prescribed specific ways that they were to worship Him. And God said He would uh, attend to that. It was utterly unique. It was utterly holy. This is the privilege that the people of Israel had. They had all these things before them and the promises. The promises. These promises were for them and they were ultimately designed to be through them and they were ultimately designed to reach all the nations of the earth. In Genesis 12, 3, as you see on the screen, in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This promise, these, these blessings are all through the people of Israel. But with all of that privilege, they still needed to embrace God and His Word and His way in order to be redeemed. To be the redeemed of the Lord, we must take Him at His Word. We must believe what He has stated. Later in Romans chapter 9, Paul refers to Jesus as the stumbling stone. And why does he do this? Because in order to receive from God, the redemption, we must take God at His Word. And these people not only did not trust and believe His Word, they actually rejected the Word with us. 
the Word made flesh. Think about that. Scroll after scroll. Oh, this is what God says. We're looking for the Messiah. We're looking for the promised one. And here comes the Messiah. The Word made flesh. And they said, eh, no, it's got to be someone else. Position does not buy salvation. For us, friends, attending church, having family devotions, going to a Christian school, being homeschooled, none of these can save us. Oh, God might use going to church. God might use having family devotions. God might use Christian school or homeschool to be part of what He uses to plant seeds and water seeds. But those avenues do not save. God saves. Don't trust in your church. Don't trust in your pastor. Trust in God. Don't trust in your process. Trust in God. Don't trust in every avenue that you're using. Trust in God. Position, pathways. They don't save. God saves. And Paul is going to prove this to us in these verses. Closely related to that in our concluding thought is as we come to the end of verse 5, we must understand that bloodline does not equal inheritance. Bloodline does not equal inheritance. Look at verse 5 again. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. Of all the privileges that the Israelites enjoyed, their relatedness to Jesus Christ stands out as the most significant. Out from them He came. You can see this in the genealogies in Matthew and Luke. Out from them, from their race, comes the Christ. He is the Christos. That's the New Testament Greek equivalent of the Old Testament Hebrew, Mashiach. Mashiach means anointed. Anointed, the anointing came upon prophets, those that declared the words of God. The priests, those that brought people to God and God to people. And kings, those that were to administrate over God's dominion. Right? Prophets, priests, and kings were anointed. And this Lord Jesus, this Christ, this Messiah was promised. Jesus is the ultimate promise fulfilled of the Old Testament Scriptures and the ultimate hope of the people of Israel. And yet, as they awaited Him, He arrived and they rejected Him. You know, He's not just from them. He's over them. God blessed forever is the way that verse ends. But it says He is the Christ who is God over all. He's not just from them. 
He's over them. And He's not just for us, chapter 8. He's over us. This is who He is. He is the Anointed One. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You know, the promises from the Psalms and the prophets spoke regularly of Jesus' rulership over all the nations. And in, in Daniel chapter 2, it's, it's uh, envisioned in the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. Remember this big golden statue? Gold, silver, you got the rest of the, the whole thing representing all these kingdoms. But yet... Some rock breaks off of a mountain and rolls down, right? And it rolls down. And it hits the feet of this golden statue of Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdoms. And, and when it hits that statue, strangely, it doesn't just fall over. It falls over and it explodes. And it's incinerated. And it's ground to powder. And that, that rock that broke off the the, the edge of the mountain becomes a kingdom that covers the globe. This is Jesus Christ, God over all and blessed forever. Amen. He's over all. And these people were, were part of this process of the Christ coming. And as glorious as He is, they rejected Him. So despite their relatedness to Him, Unless they repent and believe, they will by no means inherit the promises of the future. So Romans chapter 9 describes the pattern that not all ethnic descendants of Abraham receive these promises. The end of chapter 9 through chapter 10 tell us that it's because they rejected the Messiah that they have been stumbled but do not despair. Chapter 11 assures us that God's promises to Israel will be enjoyed at the end. But right now, where we are, right then, where Paul was, the way a person must respond to these truths is to understand that every person must know that they are a sinner. It doesn't matter what our background is. And it doesn't matter what our privilege is. It doesn't matter what promises are made around us in our families. Every person is a sinner in need of salvation. Every person must turn from their sin. Every person must turn to Jesus Christ to receive from Him eternal salvation. What makes the difference between heaven and hell? It's faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. Faith in Christ alone results in eternal salvation. It's true for you. It's true for your children. It's true for your aunts and your uncles. It's true for your neighbors and your co-workers. This is why we have a passion for people's souls. You know, in the abstract, we can agree the importance to have a burden for the lost. Oh, yes. Yes, we have these times we're reading the Scriptures and we're burdened. We these times we're in church and we're burdened. Or you go to a missions conference and you're burdened. How about, let's put some, some feet to this. Let's transition from the abstract to the concrete. How do you and how do I take another step 
toward making an impact in a world filled with lost, broken, needy sinners. I'd like to point you to a website. It's entitled whosyourone.com. You probably can't see much of what's going on there from the distance that you are currently. Whosyourone.com. It's just a snapshot of that website. It's a call to focus upon one person whom you should pray for every day and seek opportunities for the Lord to open doors to share the Gospel with that person. And in the lobby at our Welcome Center, we've printed out some of these 30-day prayer guides. Little 30-day prayer journals. So, day one, you look through, has a Scripture text and a a prayer that you insert the name of your one. Your one. Grab one of those on your way out. If we run out, we'll print some more. You can get some later. Um, But I want to challenge you to pick one of these up and to consider involving yourself consciously, decisively, to be praying. It will take this focus of this burden and Put some feet to it. One person that you know who needs the Gospel. Whom you can pray for and look for opportunities. I would also encourage you to deal with the one and others of Scripture and be willing to say, hey, who's your one? Who's your one? Helping each other apply this concept. Who's your one? And then, not only can we pray for our one, maybe we can pray for our brothers one as well. I encourage you to do this. Pray for each other. Keep at it. And know this, that the one who brings salvation is the one that we're relying upon in this process. Let us commit ourselves to the call to impact those who do not yet know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Let's pray together. Father, we think of these things and We are burdened. Burdened to see people come to know Jesus as their Savior. We know that Your Word is true. and We know that You're going to accomplish Your will. And we know that You use people. And we want You to use us. Help us to be vessels fit for Your use. That we would commit ourselves to pray and commit ourselves to invest ourselves in the lives of others. Bring someone to our minds that You have for us to commit to You in prayer. Bring someone to our mind that You want to use us to reach with Your glorious, powerful, assuring Gospel. And Father, bring forth the increase. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.